Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. And welcome to the People of Pathology podcast, where I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology and lab medicine. Cool. So today is a special episode, as you can tell. Our podcast, Deeper Levels and People of Pathology, are coming together to talk shop. Uh, Dennis, would you like to start by telling everyone who you are and how you decided to come into the podcasting game? Uh, sure. So my name is Dennis Strank. I'm a pathologist assistant and a former histotechnologist. Um, the podcast, I guess, started, I, I was talking with a, a friend of mine who's another PA, um, and we were just talking about podcasts that we both liked and about how there wasn't really one you know, for, for people like us, for, for people in, in the lab. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be kind of cool to start one? And she said, well, if you do, you know, I, I'm writing a book. You can, you can interview me and, uh, oh, how right. Handy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, so that was, uh, that's Elise Gray. That was the first episode of the show. Uh huh. And I just, um, you know, I started researching what, what do you need to do this? And, you know, you need a computer, you need a good microphone, uh -huh. um, a way to record and, uh, like a, a hosting site. Uh -huh. And there's, you know, a dozen options for all of those things. Yes. So, yeah. So as I went along, I found that it, it would take some work, but it wasn't that hard. So I just kind of went step by step and, you know, eventually we recorded the first episode, which sounded terrible. <laughs> um, we actually had to do it again and it's yeah. still, it, it's, it sounds okay. Now, if you listen to the first one, um, you know, I still had some learning to do and I, and I still do. Was but, it your, was it what you were saying or do you think it was the quality of the recording where you're like a man in a tin can kind of thing? It was a, a lot of the audio kind of went, it kind of, the volume wasn't right. It went up uh -huh. and down and in and out and whatever. And it, uh -huh. I couldn't figure out how to correct it at the time. Uh -huh. Okay. So, so I just, I got it to as good as I, I could get it and just put it out because I knew okay. if I kept playing with it, I'd never would do it. So I right. just, had, you know, like that. Perfect being the enemy of good and what have you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah uh, I had to, uh, I had to persuade a friend of mine to be my first guest because, um, it was weird because nobody wanted to come on your podcast until you had a podcast to show them. And it was like, well, right. somebody has to be the first person. Uh -huh. <laughs> I have to convince the world that I can do this. So I, I appreciate that. That's true. Um, yeah. So um, you're a PA and you live in. Oh, like, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah. Um, are you from Milwaukee? Yeah. I actually have okay. lived here my whole life. Okay. All right. That's great. Yeah. So um, I guess I can say. I, I'm, my name is Natalie Benet. For those who are listening to uh, People of Pathology, I'm a academic pathologist at uh, Women and Infants Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. I have subspecialty training in GYN and cytopathology, so that's what I do almost all the time now. Um, we do do a little bit of general search path, but for the most part, I'm pretty subspecialized at this point. I've been in academics now for a little over a year. Before that, I was in community practice for a while in Denver, Colorado. And before that, I was doing my fellowship. So I've only been out of training for about, oh, five or six years, something like that. Um, okay. And the podcasting thing is something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. I've asked several of my pathologist friends to sort of co-host with me. And it's weird you say that you're a fan of podcasts. I'm a huge fan of podcasts. And I don't know that many other people who are. So I think People who do oh. it tend to also love podcasts, if that makes sense. So um, that's kind of why I did it. Because like you, I looked at the space and I said, you know, for me, the main thing um, when COVID-19 hit and I was working from home and I was thinking, I have some time now, I have more flexibility, I should try this. And for me, the main exciting thing is to have people come on who are experts in something and just talk about what they do, kind of like what you do. Mm -hmm. But mine, I think, is more directed at like specific research topics or articles that come out. Um, and it's been a wild ride, but I think um, the one of the hardest things for me is, like I said, convincing people to come on. It turns out a lot of the people who are experts in pathology don't listen to podcasts. You have to tell them what it is um, some of the time to say, this is what it is. And all you have to do is record it and et cetera. I don't know if you find that or 
if that's something that you've run into, sort of telling, you have to explain what your medium is first and then go from there. You know, not really. I, okay. I've kind of had sort of the opposite experience. It's like every, with maybe one or two exceptions, every single person I've asked has immediately said, yeah, that sounds that's great. Awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. I was very that's surprised awesome. by that. Even, you know, even early on when uh-huh. I only had one or two episodes and they'd never heard of me, uh-huh. they're, they're like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. I think what you do focusing on people is really nice too, because it, um, especially, I mean, all clinicians and f- physicians and pathology assistants to a certain extent, but I think pathologists and pathology assistants, especially, you know, we're sort of called the black box of medicine. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to kind of flesh that out, not just for patients, but even for other clinicians to say like, Hey, here's the person behind that diagnosis, that research article, that textbook or what have you. So mm-hmm. that's really great. Well, yeah. I have to say it because all of my colleagues would hate me if I didn't. Okay. The it's pathologist's assistant. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> pathologist's assistant. Oh, so it's, it's the 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 person, not the specialty. Pathologist's assistant. Yeah. Yeah. It, I'm so used a, to just saying PA. I yeah. Oh sure, everyone is. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's a bit of a pet peeve in our field. I totally understand. <laughs> Um, it's like I, I was at Johns Hopkins for a while and people usually try to make that possessive, like Johns, like the Hopkins belongs to John, Yeah. but really it was his last name was John. So it's just has an S and that's it. And Oh, I didn't know of, that. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people mess that up <laughs> and people who are like really passionate about it get, you know, and I, I tended not to really mind that much cause I think it's very confusing. So, um, but yeah, pathologist's assistant, I can do that. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so, and I wanted to mention one other thing. Yeah. Let's, let's just acknowledge that the title of your podcast is far more clever than mine (laughs) because it has a really cool double meaning. It does. Although you said, you mentioned before we went online that it gives you chills because you used to be a hysteric. Yes. Yes. When anyone orders (laughs) deeper levels. (laughs) So here's my argument for deeper levels. I, the title obviously is like a double meaning and I, I strive to make everything a sort of pun um, and make people cringe. But <laughs> don't you think histotechnologists would prefer that a pathologist order a deeper level rather than an immunostain? Uh, mm. or no? Yeah, it, I don't well, know. it's probably less work. Exactly. So oh, okay. I mean, I usually try levels first. Is, <laughs> is my, um, right, if I fair can. Enough. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But I understand. Yes, I understand. Um, my old job, the histotechs were down the hall for me and um, they were, we were like friends and stuff. So I, I totally get it. I know where pathologists can be a pain, um, but I just always try to remind myself and everyone working that we're trying to do this for the patients, but I totally get it. Right. Right. Um, um, okay. So what um, we talked a little bit about how your podcast focuses specifically on the stories of individual people in the field of pathology. What made you decide to go with that format? Um, originally, I wanted to do a very similar to what you're doing. It, there were things about pathology that I was interested in, uh, you know, digital and computational pathology, data science, that kind of stuff. And I, but as I was looking, I. I originally made a list of people that I thought would I'd want to have on the show. And then I would start to research them and I found, you know, they have a website with a blog or a YouTube mm-hmm. channel, or they wrote a book or, mm-hmm. you know, they did a outreach project in, you know, Africa or South America or something like that. And I thought, I, I, I want to know these stories. Right. You know, so it, it evolved into, into that. Yeah. And, and that's why, and I think, part of it was, you know, I wanted to hear the stories and then I just wanted to sort of connect with these people. I guess it's a bit of a networking, uh, idea. Uh Um, and then I thought these people are doing these things and nobody knows about them. So wouldn't it be nice to have them come on, talk about what they're doing so that everybody can know. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, that list you made, you talked about the list. How do you decide who to interview and then how do you reach out to those folks to get them involved? At first it was through Twitter. Okay. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Elise, the first guest, she, you know, uh-huh. we're friends. Um, but the next few were just through, you know, as you know, pathology Twitter is very active. 
um, and there's a lot of information there. And so I would reach out to people through Twitter and then it became, you know, um, you read a, I don't know, a journal article about whatever, or mo- most recently, uh, if you're familiar with the YouTube channel pa- Pathcast, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I um, watch those, and then I'd reach out to some of the the speakers there. And actually, I I recently had uh, the the founders of Pathcast. The founders, yeah, I saw that yeah. you interviewed them. So yeah, that's which- also kind of another kind of crossover how-to episode a little bit so yeah yeah yeah. and that one was really fun yeah so yeah just kind of and you know now just you know i read something and oh that that person would be fun to talk to and now that i've got a few episodes under my belt yeah it's a little easier to sell your ideas yeah and i and i feel more comfortable doing that trying Mm -hmm. to reach out so is that kind of what you do as well yes and i have found um you know, early on with COVID and I still, I mean, right now it's such a crazy time in our country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I sort of feel like right now we're just stacking anxiety or like building levels of crazy on pre-existing anxiety. Like every time, like, you know, you see people on Twitter say like, every time you think it can't get any more crazy, the world defies your expectations. So at the first, at the outset, I wanted to know everything I can know about COVID. And now I feel, so I was reaching out to people to talk about that. And then I figured, that was going to be part of our lives for a long time. So I also needed to sort of fold in more um, regular, if you will, research topics. And so I've noticed that I tend to reach out to people about things that I am interested in. So perinatal stuff, pregnancy-related stuff, cytopathology-related stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to pivot right now to things that I don't naturally gravitate towards because I don't want this to become the GYN cytopathology podcast because it I want it to be, you know, about science and medicine and pathology. So right. um, I find that reaching out to authors of journal articles is very useful because um, anyone who writes a paper, I mean, you know, by the time you see a paper in the, in the, in a journal, that person probably came up with that idea two or three years ago. They've lived with it. They've breathed it, you know? And so if you go to them and you say, Hey, do you want to come and just talk about it? Usually they are, they can't wait to talk about it, you know, because it's not something that they have to go look up. It's not something that they have to read about. They know it off the top of their head. And I, um, I've been thinking a lot about teaching lately too, especially as remote learning becomes more popular. And I find that I've been thinking a lot about how people learn and mentorship and how people come up with ideas, who helps people who are successful become successful. So I think I've I've been trying to fold all of those things together to talk to people about, you know, increasing opportunity, especially for people who don't normally show up in pathology journals. So um, I would say, yeah, I, I probably follow a very similar format, although I won't claim that I was as well prepared as you were. I didn't have a master list at the beginning. (laughs) And sometimes some weeks I'll look at my husband and say, you know, I've emailed like 30 people and I've heard back from no one. And it's funny because then I'll hear back from like eight people all at one time. Does that make sense? Like you hear nothing and then all of a sudden you're recording three shows in a week. So I don't know. Yes, actually it does. (laughs) That's been my week. (laughs) You just make the best of it. And I, my husband's like, well, you know, because he's, we're both really into podcasts and he'll say, you know, people who um, are successful at podcasting um, have a schedule and they follow a schedule. And I'm thinking, well, they must have like a, like a producer or something or like an assistant because it's hard to titrate that stuff perfectly. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think the, the bigger ones do have producers and whole teams and things like that. Yeah. I wish at the end of my podcast, I had a 10 minute long thing I could read about all the people who were helping me edit and put in <laughs> research assistance, et cetera. Um, probably do, do I just you have do to... everything yourself? I do. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do almost everything myself. My husband has to help me with the, we have a theme song, which I, I know we were going to talk about later, but yeah. um, he helps me fade it in at the beginning and fade it out or whatever the opposite fade out and fade in at the, you know, because that stuff is kind of hard when you have two things going on at the same time. I'm learning it, but, um, it's challenging. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had to learn how to do that too. Yeah. It helps that I have a, uh, uh, 
a significant other who is a um, self-avowed computer nerd. Um, I mean, he's the kind of person who was like building his own computer in high school and stuff like that. So, you know, this isn't a challenge for him. It's like uphill battle for me. It's not that hard for him. So I I wanted to ask you, because often when I'm researching a guest, because what I do is, you know, I'll reach out to the guest and I don't typically ask them what they want to talk about. Oh, I, I okay. tell them yeah. what, what I want to talk about right. b- about them, if that, uh-huh. if that makes sense. Do you give them veto power? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. But so I'll make a little list um, of, of kind of topics that I want to talk about and maybe some sample questions. But I'll often, as I'm researching them, I'll find something unexpected. Okay. Um, you know, like I have an, an initial idea of why I want to talk to them. And then I find this other thing that's even maybe even more interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, I was researching you and you've got a YouTube channel, you've got a, mm. a blog, mm-hmm. um, you know, the website, the, the monthly journal club, which by the way, I just, I signed up for and just got my hey. first, uh, hey. email about that yesterday. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, about all those things, but specifically the, the blog, because I've been thinking about starting one myself. You know, I go back and forth about blogs. So I I wanted to have a blog for a long time. I remember one time I had a blog for a while when I was a fellow and then someone I knew but didn't really know well came up and quoted it to me in the hallway Oh wow! at work. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird, you know, <laughs> but now, I, I know. But now I think, I mean, that was, mm, you know, seven or eight years ago. I think now everything is on the internet. I don't think people really have that much time to read everything. So honestly, I just, the reason I originally started the blog was because I had several guests who didn't want to come on the podcast to be interviewed, but they agreed to do a a print interview and I didn't have anywhere to put it. So that was the reason why I first made it. And now I kind of use it to put either like funny things or, um, if I'm doing research for an interview and I stumble across a bunch of really interesting stuff that I don't have time to talk about in the interview, or I want to flesh it out a little bit, I'll put it on there. Um, I always juggle. I I mean, I struggle with the idea of a blog because I think part of it is very self-indulgent. Does that make sense? Like it seems a little, and so I I try to use it judiciously, I guess is my best answer to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are still people out there who think like, I don't really want to hear what you have to think, Natalie. Why are you putting this online? So uh, it is it is what it is. And the uh, the YouTube channel was also born out of necessity because I was supposed to lecture to residents right around the time when COVID hit and I couldn't. And I didn't have an ability to share my screen. So I started learning how to record my screen and okay. putting the videos on. The other thing that I, I'm very interested in, like I said, education. And I figured if I put it on YouTube... Um, you know, there's several pathologists who already do this, then it can be available to anyone in the whole world who needs to have access to this kind of information, which really appeals to me, sort of like democratizing, little d, democratizing education. Um, And it's been helpful because then I can put the journal club monthly recordings on there and then any other educational videos I come into, uh, come across. And then there's also this um, new course that some folks are developing called Path Elective, where they're going to make Oh, sure. Um, I've heard of that. Yeah. Some introductory um, level, like, you know, junior resident slash medical student level educational content available. And I wanted to host that information myself and link to it from their resource. That way, um, you know, it wouldn't only be through their course, it would also be available to anyone else who wanted to see it. So uh, it's come in handy. And honestly, I've been interfacing with trainees these days. And I tell them, I I bet in 10 years, most pathologists will have a YouTube channel who are involved in educational content because it's such an easy way to disseminate that information. And I've encouraged them if they can figure out how to do it, to just go ahead and get one. That way they can start, you know, every time you give a lecture to your co-residents, you could just record a copy of it on your computer and post it. And then, you know, that would be there forever. So it's really, yeah. I think that's, of of yeah. all the things that are happening, yeah, you know, during COVID, I think all the the virtual learning and virtual lectures and things like that, it's, I, it's like it that's been a good thing because we get to try these things out and exactly. figure out how they work, and I think that it's going to be a large part of of the the future of education. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I uh, I had a show a couple of weeks ago where I talked to these folks who did eye tracking um, uh, software research with cytotechnology students to to see how they were looking at the right or wrong cells and making the diagnosis. Okay. And um, one of the folks on there, Dr. Pantanowitz, is a... Um, uh, oh, sure. I've heard of him. Yeah, he's very yeah. he's very well known in um, digital pathology. And he commented on something that stuck with me. He called it like a schizophrenic education that we're giving these trainees because basically trainees these days, and you probably experience this with, you know, the younger generation, everything's on the computer. You uh-huh. go to pathology labs when I teach in the medical school and they look at a microscope like, oh my goodness, what is that? You know, and I have to teach them like, so where you put the slide and you have to put your actual eyeballs on, you know, and um, a lot of the learning is also on the computer. So they have the slide to look at, but they, so we're basically taking students who learn online and learn digitally and all their notes and all their information is on the computer. And then we're pulling them back and making them look at a hard physical slide. And there's good arguments to be made that those are the better ways to do it. But I think at least yanking people like me who are still stuck, you know, with paper and pen some of the times into this format is better for these students because it's how they were already learning. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yes. I think it's yes, it important does. to meet them where they are. I think everyone's going to still need to know how to look at slides, obviously. But I think some of the educational content can be put in a digital format. And then I also think it'll free up time um, for the teachers, for professors, for you know instructors, so that that content is available for them to review. And then you can spend your time in person going over more sophisticated cases, more difficult material in person. So right. I think that's, yeah. 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 That, that's the, uh, I had uh, an episode with, a, a, her name's Sarah Garner. She's a PA that teaches, uh, she uh, runs a PA program uh-huh. and she was talking about the flipped classroom concept, which is basically what you just said. Yeah. They, they have the basic information available in videos right. or whatever. And then uh-huh. in class is the kind of in-depth right. work on it. It's like it's it's like expecting sort of precursor knowledge to sort of be absorbed before they show up to you. So you're not just teaching them like this is north and this is south kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. They've already got that down. Yeah, that's true. Um uh yeah, I think I think a, a place I haven't seen this actually expand much as of yet would is like grossing pathology um videos and stuff like that because um, you know, I know it's grossing kind of has a bad rap with pathologists, but, um, <laughs> I, as someone who was in community practice for a while and I did my own grossing a lot of the time, it's okay. a skill that you have to have. And so I think being able to do it well is a prerequisite for being a good pathologist. I don't think you can do this job if you don't know how to do that well. So I, I would agree um, with that. Now working with yeah. residents now the last couple yeah. of years, I, I, yeah. I agree. And yeah. Grossing is, it's not just about doing the grossing, the, yeah. the method of thinking that you learn, you can apply to, you know, looking at slides and everything yes. else that you do. Yes. It's the same way of thinking. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, I can say when I grossed my own specimens and signed them out, when I followed them through from start to finish, the sign out part was so much easier when I was the one who'd had that organ or whatever in my hand. And I knew where this was in relation to that. And um, I think pathologists who haven't grossed in a while, it kind of, you forget about that part, Uh um, about how nice that is. Um, So um, I wanted to touch, uh, you asked me about the monthly journal club. And this was actually the thing that that's sort of like my baby and it's my passion. Um, I started that back in the fall for just the fellows at my institution, we have two this year and we would meet in person. And then, um, I had always wanted to make a website, but I was thinking more along the lines of just posting which articles we reviewed, posting the written reviews that we made. And then the follow-up quizzes that I made when COVID came, I took it online and I have been shocked at how many people are interested in participating. I thought that this was a pretty, um, uh, focused esoteric thing that people, you know, like a couple of people mm-hmm. would have interest in. But I think there's like over a hundred people now who are signed up for the newsletter. I'm not saying they all come to the journal club, but 
I've had people message me on Twitter who wrote the papers. We've had, you know, major pathology journals make their articles available free for the journal club. It's just, um, oh wow, yeah, it's really nice to see people coming together. And I know it sounds really kumbaya, but <laughs> next month or, or this month, I've had people reach out to me from all over the world to present. So I have someone from India presenting and another pathologist from um, Qatar, which I'm probably saying wrong. I think it's Qatar. I don't know. So basically it, it's becoming an international jam. You know, it's awesome. I, I just, oh. I can't tell you how happy that makes me that people are all over the world are nerding out over GYM pathology right alongside me. Um, so. I think it's great. And, and, <laughs> and for my listeners, I, I like to put links in the show notes to all the things we talk about. I'll definitely link to the journal club. Yeah. And you can sign up and join us. And mm-hmm. I um, send out that newsletter at the beginning of the month and I tell you the topic. So if it's something that's not interesting to you, you don't have to show up, obviously. It's not like mandatory. Um, and we have a rotating 12 month schedule of different topics on GY. And this month we're talking about cervix. So, mm-hmm. um, so we were talking about how we make shows. Do you, when you have a guest on, you said you make a list of topics, you send that to the person you're interviewing yes. ahead of time? Okay. Yeah. Like uh, anywhere from a week to sometimes a couple of days, um, Uh depending on when I get around to it. Um, and it's usually, I I try not to go into too much detail Uh because I want it to be, um, spontaneous. spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do, I do script out the first two or three questions that I ask Uh just because, you know, I'm sure, you know, when you turn on the microphone and you start recording, you forget what to say. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. So I, I actually write that out the, fir- uh-huh. the first few. And then from there, I just kind of let it go to wherever it goes. Yeah. I actually didn't used to make an outline. Okay. Although my first couple of shows, I, I would do the same thing. Like if there was really uh, factually heavy stuff, I would list that out. But then I had a couple of guests um, who weren't familiar with having their voice recorded, et cetera, et cetera, multiple different reasons. They just wanted to know what they were getting into. Okay. So I've gotten in the habit of making an outline. And sometimes I, I wish it was a little more spontaneous, but I also understand that I'm talking to scientists, you know, and they tend to be, um, you know, fact-based people. They want to know what's going on. Sure. Sure. I just meet people where they need to be. Um, do, do you find that you're the show usually when you have an outline, does it usually follow the outline or because for me uh-huh. I often it goes off on some kind of tangent at that might be interesting and we just kind of go with it uh do you find that too I find that maybe less often for me and I don't know if that's my personality or the personality of the people I'm interviewing mm. sometimes I also feel guilty if I ask people a question that I didn't tell them I was going to ask oh yeah um I never want to make people feel unprepared I guess um it depends who I'm talking to. If it's someone I know, then I guess I would feel more comfortable doing that. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting that we're doing the same thing and we have such different styles. That's probably a good thing. So yeah, it's good. We can, <laughs> we can learn from each other. Exactly. Yeah. And give people different, uh, different things to sample. Um, yeah. so we talked about how you had to figure out the technology aspect of recording and posting and yada, yada. Um, it seems that you're relatively computer savvy from what I can tell about looking at your um, formatting and your, your, you know, your intros and stuff. Um, I assume that some of the people you interview are not quite as tech savvy. Have, have you had any tech problems or conversely, have you had any problems getting people connected with you and using the right microphone and things like that? Uh, it's funny. I was going to say, no, everything's been fine. But just yesterday, uh, <laughs> I had a call drop. Oh, um, stinker. Right yeah. in the middle of recording? Yeah, it was It was oh. actually towards the end. We had okay. like, it was, we were just wrapping up the last topic and then, you know, wrap up the show, whatever. And it, and it dropped. So we had to reconnect um, and and record the, the rest. And then I can just splice them together. So it wasn't it wasn't a huge deal, but it was yeah. the first time it had happened. Um, yeah. I haven't really had for, for the guests. I haven't really had any of them who didn't understand the technology. Oh, um, most people have some sort of microphone, even if it's just like, you know, earbuds or something like that. Okay. So that works. Um, and as, as far as the technology part, I, I, 
I just keep learning how to do, you know, I learn more about editing and I'm learning now about, um, different audio plugins that I can use to like cut down on reverb or echo or volume, you know, uh, compression and equalization and all of that stuff. And I probably spend way too much time on those things, but, um, so it sounds like you kind of enjoy it a little bit, a a little, when it works. Yeah. (laughs) It's really nice. When, when I find some kind of problem and then I find a solution and it works and it sounds great. Yeah. That's, that's, I love that. I think you should make a t-shirt. I enjoy technology dot, dot, dot when it works. <laughs> like exactly how that's, I feel about technology. That's a good idea. That one, that, that'll be a bestseller. <laughs> that'll be a bestseller. Oh my goodness. Especially in this age when everyone's trying to zoom. I don't know if you've had group zoom calls lately yes. where like some, like there's always one person who doesn't mute and there's always, you know, someone who can't make their camera work or is talking when they're muted or something. And you're just, yeah. Yeah. I, I just find, uh, I've had guests, um, have trouble connecting uh i've had some guests like i had one guest plug in a pair of headphones that didn't have a microphone and i didn't realize it was cutting their voice off so they could hear me but i couldn't hear them and it took us like 10 minutes to figure that out i had to do a zoom call with them and say like oh, okay oh, okay and um so i've had several guests who i guess maybe it's just a difference in you know perspectives and like what kind of computer you're using and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, it is, it's an, it's a journey, this technology part of it. Yes. But yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I enjoy technology when it works. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to write that down right now. Okay. Um, you know, as, as I was going along with, with my interviews, I found several recurring themes and most of the time there are things I didn't expect Mm-hmm. Um, have you had a similar experience for, for example, like a lot of people I talked to had some kind of experience with, um, outreach to underserved areas, whether in this country mm-hmm. or other countries, and they're very, um, outspoken about the need to help to serve these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm finding a lot of people are, are saying the same thing. Have you, have you found something like that? Um, I don't know about, uh, outreach to underserved areas particularly. I think that's just hasn't been yet what I've been focusing on. Mm -hmm. I have, however, been focused or maybe even obsessed with the idea of learning. And even from the beginning, I've been noticing the themes of learning just popping up over and over again. Yes. I, um, I've been thinking a lot about what makes a good teacher. I think there are some people who assume I should say that being a good teacher means you have to be physically present. And because I can't do that right now, I've been thinking about what it means to be a good teacher, what it means to be a good mentor. Then I've gone back and thought about why am I in the field that I'm in? And I think about my mentors. So I think a theme that's been coming up again and again with me is how people learn, how people learn differently, how learning is trans transforming how education is transforming. So if I had to pick one theme, I think it would be that. And I think like you and I already talked about that learning was transforming to a digital format, whether or not pathologists wanted to admit it. Mm-hmm. And that COVID-19 sort of um, just like kicked us all. Like we were walking down the road and it just like booted us, you know, 10 miles in that direction without us having any say so. So um, I think that would be the one theme that I would would say I recognize. And and I think it's going to be for the best. And I think, you know, when we look back years from now, we'll realize that this was a kickstart in a revolution of online learning and little d democratization of learning, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, so your voice seems made for broadcasting. And this is the first time I will say that I have spoken to anyone on a recording who also has a podcasting microphone. Um I like to pretend that I'm Terry Gross. I don't know who you pretend that you are. Um, I assume that you have a fancy microphone. Did you get it just for podcasting? And do you have a special room where you record for less echo and better sound quality? I do. I did get a microphone just for this. Okay. Um, But it's, I think it costs like $80. Yeah. It's kind of your uh, entry level. Entry level. Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. And I have one of those uh, boom stand things with the pop filter the, the little screen yeah 
And me too. How great. Weird. Okay. And is yours hanging down from above or is it the kind that sits on the desk? It's got like an arm that attaches to the mm-hmm. side of the desk and then reaches over. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I never understood why I use I, I love NPR and I used to follow I follow those people on Twitter and sometimes they'll send pictures of themselves out recording from remote locations. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen anything like this? Like they're sure. in a closet with all the clothes hanging around them or they're on a, you know, a bus and they put like four coats over their head so that they're there's no echo. <laughs> now wow. I get it. You well, know? <laughs> I do have I got a noise dampening blanket. Ooh, that, and where is that? That I, I kind of hung up in the doorway, in, oh. in in this the little room that I'm in. Okay, um, and that's I you know I don't have like the foam paneling or any of that kind of stuff. It's just this blanket hanging in the doorway, uh-huh. um, which I think was like twenty dollars or something on Amazon. Okay, um, okay. and it it yeah it kills the echo. And is so, that a doorway that you have to walk through, or you move the blanket? Yeah, works. I have like it's oh, on like Velcro strips, so I just hang it up when I'm recording and take it down okay. when I'm done. And, okay, yeah. I've I've been exiled to my basement for working, and it just so happens to have drop ceilings, okay, and carpet. So I haven't had to do much, but I like the idea of a blanket. That's nice. Yeah. That's, although if I had a blanket up and I made a Zoom call, people might think, "What is going on with that woman?" You know, <laughs> anything's possible. <laughs> Well, it's just it's just like flat blue, so it it might make a yeah, good background. Yeah. yeah, right now there's a David Bowie library poster behind me, which I think is pretty right, pretty that's, reputable. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Can't argue with that. <laughs> you can't argue with that. Um, how did you pick your theme song? That was, I wanted to have one from the beginning, and it's only been the last two episodes that I finally got oh. it. I I had been thinking about what I wanted it to be. And I was very, like, I was probably too specific with it. Like I wanted to kind of have it start sort of quiet and sort of build up to this like big, I, I don't know. I, and I wanted it to be, you know, a lot of podcasts have like some smooth jazz or uh-huh. elevator music or whatever. And, and I wanted it to be a little bit more rock because that's, okay. that's where Is that your, from. your music of, of choice, rock yeah. music? Yeah. But, yeah, I, you know, it. but not yeah. too much that it would turn people away. Exactly. Yeah. So I eventually found the, a website that had, you know, you could li- buy licenses for, for music. It was oh. specifically for podcasts. Oh. And so, you know, I searched for hours. Oh, wow. Scrolling through and scrolling through. And then finally I found the, the one and like I played it and I thought, yeah, that's it. And I, you know, that's called awesome. called my wife in here and I'm like, listen to this. She's like, yeah, that's great. That's the one. So oh, that's great. Yeah, that's good that you have someone to bounce ideas off of too. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, she's been she's been really great for that. Yeah, um, that's so funny. So I and your your like, your, your theme song has a, has a story. I know from from your blog. It does. So I wanted to have a theme song, and when I sent my theme song, when I finally got it to my good friend, who was actually my first guest, I said, I have a theme song, and she wrote me. <laughs> She wrote me back something I'll never forget. She goes, I've always wanted to have a theme song to play in my head as I go through the world. <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> amen. I'm 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 here. So um, but I wanted it to be like you said, you want it to be something you actually like. I just I didn't want it to just be some elevator music. Yeah. It's the perfect way of saying it. So um I have a friend who's actually a good friend of my husband's, and he's an electronic DJ. I don't even know how to really describe the kind of music because I'm not as proficient in that kind of music but he used to do these online dj things and my husband and i would listen to them where he would just stream live himself and he has all these um i don't even i'm not even going to say the word right the record player where you can sort of you know um modulate sound and scratch things together and he's Mm. incredible and i emailed him and i said hey how's it going i know this is a long shot i have a podcast i know i'm a big dork will you write me a podcast a theme song and he immediately emailed back and said of course i will i would be glad to i think he's also parenthetically stuck at home because of covid at the Mm. time so um he asked me for what songs i like and i had been listening to a lot of um like power pop which i would say is my sort of music of choice so like one of my favorite songs of all time is cruel to be kind by nick lowe and um that was one of the ones i sent him and i said maybe something like this so if you listen to that it sounds I think along the same lines as my my theme my theme song. Well, I'm going to check. And I, 
Yeah. And when I first got the theme song, I think I just played it over and over and over again. And I actually was able to get it stuck in my head, even though it doesn't have words. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like a crazy. It totally makes sense. I did the same thing. Cool. That's so awesome. (laughs) It's really great to connect with someone who is um, similarly nerdy to you. Yes. So. Well, um, now wait. No, you said uh, you mentioned your your friend said having about a theme song for your life. Oh yeah. What what would you have? Because I know what mine would be. Oh oh, gosh. Well, you go first. Give me a second to think about. Oh, it'd be the Imperial March from Star Wars. (laughs) Doesn't that mean you're a bad guy? (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. It means you're Uh, important. man i don't know but you know what i you know maybe like the theme song from lord of the rings i love that the one that plays when they're in the hobbit okay that song okay it's it's just nice it's like a piccolo or something Mm -hmm. it's sweet imperial march okay wow i gotta i gotta shift some things around in my head that i thought about you (laughs) sorry (laughs) that's really funny (laughs) um (laughs) now i was gonna ask you like a serious question but i have to wipe my eyes. Um, okay. What what made you decide to become a pathologist assistant? Um, you said you do teaching now, so can you talk about what kind of like what your job looks like, and then what is your favorite thing about your job? So how I became a pathologist assistant is uh, uh, it was by accident. I uh, went to college. I majored in biology. I wanted to get into microbiology, and mm-hmm. I didn't want anything to do with any human anatomy, human biology. I thought it was all stupid. I Oh, interesting. Yeah. I remember there in like the intro to bio lab methods or whatever it was called, there was a section on histology. And we looked at slides and we looked at organs and we did all those things. And I remember thinking, and I'll never forget this. I remember thinking, this is stupid. Why would anyone want to do this for a job? <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah>. And... <laughs> I, you sound like a surly youth at that point. That oh, would be my. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Surly. That's a good word. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, got out of college, eventually got a job um, in a hospital lab in the histology department because I th- I needed to get a job. And uh, mm-hmm. so I thought, well, all right, because I had intended to go back, you know, get a master's degree, whatever. So I thought, well, all right, I'll do this for a little while and then go back to school. And it it turned out it it was very interesting. I loved it. And I so I was a lab lab assistant and I worked with uh it was like assisting engrossing with with the PA. It was just like oh. recording, you know, a number of pieces and cassettes and stuff. Everything was on paper back then. Right. Um and the PA, my friend Sandra, she she's like, Well, I can teach you how to do some of this stuff you know, grossing biopsies and little skin, you know, th- things like that. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay. So she taught me to do some of that stuff. And then uh, eventually I became a histotech. Um, they, they trained me on the job because back then you could do that. And I had a, had a college degree. So that was met the requirements, did that. And then eventually Sandra took a job somewhere else. And by that time she had taught me some, you know, gallbladders and placentas, things like that. So mm-hmm. when she left, uh, the pathologist, the, the uh, head of the department, he said, well, we can just teach you the rest of this stuff if you want to learn. Because at that time too, you could, you could learn. Uh, on the job on the training job. kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that ended in, I want to say 2006 or something like that. So I used to know that, but yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. So this was in 2000, I think. Okay. And so I thought, all right. So they just gradually taught me, you know, more and more complex things and eventually, you know, took the certification exam and, and here. What was that like? Was that on paper or in person or? That was in person. At that time you had to go to the, uh, the annual conference the AAPA okay. annual conference. And that was the only time in in the fall, that was the only time that was offered. So it was once a year. So you had to go take the exam. Um, what does that look like? Do they have organs for you to? No, gross? it was, most of it was just, um, there were some like pictures and then okay. you would answer questions about the pictures. Like what, you know, something would be pointed. There'd be an arrow at 
okay. whatever. And what is this structure or what is this, you know? But it wasn't like, vessel. here's a, a picture of a Whipple. What 15 sections would you take? Not like um, that. Some of it. Okay. Some, some of it. Yeah. yeah. But there wasn't anything. There was no, there were no like actual organs and you didn't have to actually cut anything. It was all yeah, just. I don't know how they would do that. That would be pretty problematic yeah. to cart a bunch of organs to a conference. I have to say, honestly, I don't remember too much about it. When I got out of that exam, I couldn't even remember my own name. <laughs> it was hard. That's how I felt about boards. Yeah, so. I believe it's it. It's a universal experience. It. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and so that's that's how I got in the field. I just, I became very good at being in the right place at the right time. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And just kind of took advantage of opportunities, I guess. And you're teaching now in your current role? Well, we work with residents. We don't... Officially, we don't teach them. We're just kind of there as a resource okay. if they need help with But crossing. your institution has residents rotating yes. regularly? Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, I, it always felt better, I can tell you, as a resident to be grossing when the PAs were there mm-hmm. versus when they were not because um, you can't stump a PA. That's always been my experience. I, um, <laughs> my favorite, One of my favorite PAs of all time was from North Carolina. Her name was Tracy. I think she still works at UNC. She did the last time I knew. And she was the person I would sort of crawl to with like puppy eyes and be like, Tracy, I can't find the ureters. <laughs> oh, just, yeah. You know, she would just pad over to my bed to say, okay, give me the probe. And um, it's uh, it's so wonderful that pathologist assistants exist and uh, that you all are so good at what you do. Um, well, thank you. I know we all appreciate hearing that. Well, I mean, I've worked places with and without good PAs and it's um, it's a, it's like a night and day difference between you know, when you have a PA who is invested in what they're doing and is excellent, you can take a deep breath and focus on the microscopy as a pathologist versus when you sort of feel like someone's either still learning or unfortunately is someone who isn't maybe as invested. Mm -hmm. Um, It just makes such a huge difference. So um, I didn't put this, this is a spontaneous question for you, but um, what since you are someone who I, I think the term is like grandfathered in yes, the sort of exactly. on the job training, what, what changes have you seen? Because I know, I'm mean, like, I talked to cytotechnologists and their jobs are changing a lot as the pap smear volumes go down, for example, what changes are you seeing? Cause I, I think PAs are becoming more important, not less important as resident work hours are more curtailed and controlled. I would think that PAs are becoming increasingly important in the field of pathology? What's your experience there? I'd, I'd like to think so. It, it does mm-hmm. seem like th- there are fewer and fewer places where the pathologists do their own grossing. Uh-huh. So for us, you know, that's that's a good thing because we're still in high demand. Right. Um, and there's a lot of PAs are getting into, you know, actual formal teaching, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like management and uh, autopsies and even, you know, forensic uh, autopsies as well. So the, mm-hmm. the, the field keeps um, expanding, I think. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you were involved in the, in your association with, you know, some leadership roles and stuff. So yes. I'm glad to hear that uh, your field is on secure footing. Cause if anything happened to PAs, uh, we'd be, be in big trouble. So <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's yeah. It's we're now. we we uh, I think we're optimistic about the future for for good. PAs. That's good to hear, mm-hmm. especially in this day and age. So I think it's you now. Oh, oh right. Uh, you mentioned a couple times you've you've become recently interested in education, uh-huh. and I I wonder how how has teaching been rewarding for you. And do you have any stories of maybe students that you've inspired to to pursue a career in pathology and maybe they were headed in a different direction and you hmm. you help them to, to change that? I uh so teaching is rewarding for me um in a lot of ways. And like I said, when I think about my own experience, I just try to remember how people treated me when I was coming up through the ranks. And it's hard. I'm sure you run into this as well. When you're having a busy day and you're stressed out and you have a student, any kind of student, medical student, undergraduate student, resident, fellow, um, it's hard to remember um, how it felt 
to be that person. And that's what I always try to remind myself because mm. I remember in medical school, and I'm sure you remember when you were training, feeling like you were in the way. Oh, that, yes. And that, you know, you weren't contributing anything useful, which was ironic because in medical school, I think I worked the longest hours. I, I mean, I remember being at the hospital before four o'clock, 4.30 in the morning and and then just sort of being on rounds and trying to like stay out of people's way literally and trying not to make noise. And so I just try to um, remember that um, when you're with a student, be engaged with a student, engage them in what you're doing and make sure they're learning something. If you're distracted and you need time for yourself, just tell them, you know, here's what we're going to be learning about at an hour from now. Can you just go read these two chapters and come back at in an hour and we'll be ready to go and not having people just hang around and sort of have everyone be getting on everyone's nerves. I don't know if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. I just try to remember that teaching is, um, it's about quality, not quantity, and also making these things available online, like you said, to sort of bring people up to speed. And in terms of inspiring someone to become a pathologist who wasn't going to be a pathologist, I don't know if there's anyone out there you can reach out to me. I do know that I'm having someone on my podcast this week who visited me as a medical student and now she's an attending. Um, and it's crazy to me that that's how long it's been, but seeing that happen is very rewarding. And I know I probably play almost no role in her success, but just seeing someone who you saw when they were a sort of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed medical student mm -hmm. now you know, publishing journal articles and having grand rounds, I guess that's kind of what makes it all worth it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, I think teaching is what keeps me interested in, in going forward. I, I found being a community practice rewarding in different ways, but I really did miss teaching. So that's something I do know about myself. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And then, um, now we're going to do some fun questions. Um, okay. What are the most lymph nodes you've ever found in a colon cancer? And I will disclose that I worked with a PA who found more than 80, and I'm pretty sure more than 100 one time. Um, so wow. what's your what's your record? Yeah. You know, I I don't know the, a specific number. I, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, I think. Okay. okay. Um, I can't say for, I mean, that was for colon cancer, but like of, uh -huh. of all time, uh -huh. I had a case once, it was a, it was a mastectomy and the patient had Ooh. breast cancer and uh -huh. lymphoma. Oh. And that was, I think I found 109. Oh, goodness. That was, that so was, they were big. The lymph nodes yeah. were big. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah, that was, that was crazy. Yeah. I think I had a case like that one time, but the patient had inflammatory bowel disease and had a colectomy mm, and all okay. of the lymph nodes were giant and I had to just decide which ones to sample. But yeah. Sure. sure. Okay. Um, what, do you have a favorite kind of specimen? I do. Uh, it's placentas all day long, but really, yep. Wow, then, you're a valuable asset. Most people don't enjoy those as much. I <laughs> happen to love placentas as well. Why do you Good. like them? I just I, the I used to work at a hospital that had a very active NICU, uh. and so we would get um, a lot of placentas, of course, and a lot of of normal ones. Yeah, yeah. a lot of uh, let's say bad outcomes. Yeah. And so I learned a lot about them and they had a, every couple of months they had a perinatal M&M &M. mm -hmm. and so uh, the pathologist and myself and the other PA, we would go and I just learned so much and it was, you learned how, what we were doing, uh, um, the information that we gave helped the patients, right? you know, not only the current patients, but then they wouldn't know what to do maybe the next time in the same kind Future of situation. pregnancies. Yeah. 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 So it, it really kind of completed the circle, I guess. And yeah. it felt very rewarding to me. Um, yeah. That's so I great. just, I started learning as much as I could about uh -huh. placentas and um, yeah. And now they're my favorite, although a close second, any, you know, GYN specimen, I, I, I enjoy those as well. Right answer. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Me too. Obviously, they're my favorite things to gross. Yeah. yeah. I even like grossing cone biopsies. I mean, all of it. Well, I don't know if I can say that one, but. <laughs> oh, man. I use a cutting board. It's like, you're, you know, wow. the residents used to look at me like, what are you doing? And I use wow. a cutting board and I draw out the four quadrants. Yeah. That's how I've always done it. 
Okay. You know, whatever. We're all our own people, right? So. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's GYN is your is your your favorite, Definitely. obviously. Definitely. Why? I mean, and and the rush of the frozen section. Love frozen sections. So like, give me that uterus, that ovary at frozen. Just great. I love it every single time. How do you feel about dermoid cysts? Mm. Sometimes <laughs> it's a little icky. I have to say they're probably the specimen that I least like the sort of um, tactile sensation of. But okay. whenever I see it, I'm always like, oh, good, because that's probably good for her. You know, sure. Like that's yeah. that's a better outcome. So I can put aside my um, my icky factor a little bit for that. But yeah, there, I don't think anybody really enjoys all that hair. I mean, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little much. I one time grossed a bezoar. Have you ever seen one of those? Yes. Mm-hmm. That was dissatisfying. Yeah. I, I like that. If I never see another one, that would be yeah. fine. I had to call my attending and say, do you actually want me to um, like submit sections of this? And he was like, no, <laughs> not of the hair. And I was like, cool. Nice. We're good. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I wanted yeah. to ask you, your your website promises pathology inside jokes. Okay. I want to hear some. So most of mine are bad puns. I didn't make up any just for this, but I will say for my journal club, my monthly newsletter, like for the month, the month when we had granulosa cell tumors, I, I was like, oh, it's granulosis, it's sex cord stromal tumors. Good call. And that was italicized because there are call external bodies in granulosa cell tumors. And then I said like groovy because they're a groove nuclei. I mean, they're really Whoa. not... They're like next level cringeworthy and bad, which I think in this moment of national strife is just what we need. You know, the physical pain of a bad joke. Okay. I want (laughs) to point out for this month, it said Mm -hmm. at your cervix. At your cervix. (laughs) I did not make that up, but I love it. (laughs) I've heard that one before, but that's. (laughs) It's pretty bad, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) I'm, I'm looking forward to more. You know, I'm I'm here to serve. That's what I'm here for. Um, so what do you do when you're not podcasting or grossing? Um well, listen to rock music? Yes. Um yes. I, I I play a little guitar. Um oh, cool. Um I, I'm a runner, I'm a, a ultra runner. So I run uh ultra marathons are hundred miles? I have not done a hundred miles, but I have done hundred K. Oh. So um, the math on that, like that's sixty-three-ish miles, okay. sixty-two. Okay. Um, so on that, you know, there's fifty miles. There's fifty k is like the shortest ultra marathon. So things like that. So, wow. yeah, I'm off. Where, how do you train? You run outside or on a treadmill? Outside. There's a about half hour, forty five minutes from here. There's a really there's it's called the Ice Age Trail, um, and I just. On the weekends, I'm out there for hours, and you just oh, wow. run a lot. And during the week, do you run just little bits whenever you can? Yeah, yeah. So that's okay. you know, I'll run around the neighborhood. We we don't live too far from Lake Michigan, so I'll run down to there and oh, along nice. the lake and stuff. And even when it's cold, you run outside. Yes, I. Oh, you must. I yeah. for a while I tried treadmills indoors and stuff, and I uh-huh. I just hated it. So I got all the you know this cold weather gear and whatever, and I just go and. I don't know. It's ultra marathon runner. Yes. Um, How about you? What, what what do you, what do you do in your spare time? Um, right now I just, uh, I'm supposed to be educating my children, which is hysterical and uh, <laughs> they're little. And so I do the best I can. And then I, um, I sew actually, I oh. quilt, I not extremely well, but I do the best I can. And then I've been making masks for my neighbors. Okay. Um, and I guess I, lately I try to watch movies that my kids will watch with me. Oh, so if you if you hadn't have become a pathologist, what would have been your second choice? OB, easy. I almost became an OBGYN. Okay. I think that's one of the reasons why I love GYN so much. I think I just, I enjoy that field. And then um, it was really the difference between, um, I'm a bit of an introvert, so constant patient interaction I think would have been a lot for me. And then also the lifestyle. I had a family friend who was an OBGYN, and I shadowed him for a couple of weeks. And he he was nearing retirement, but he was still on call, like Q3 or something, up all night. Mm-hmm. Obviously, women just have babies all the time. And I was thinking that I probably would not 
be able to do that long term. So okay. yeah, but I still love it. And I'm, I ended up back near there anyway. So sure. Yeah. sure. Well, what about you? What would you, well, you, you thought histology was dumb. So what, what would you have done if you hadn't done this? I, I probably would have been something completely like way out of science. I think I, uh-huh. I don't know. I'll, you know, like I said, originally I wanted to get into microbiology research. I actually mm-hmm. wanted to work at the CDC, which, which is, hey. it's funny because now it would have been a, a great time to be there. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I interviewed a couple of people who were inspired by the CDC. That's interesting. Mm. Um, so to close out, what is your favorite podcast? Or I suppose you could give five because you said you really like podcasts. So you probably have a whole slew that you listen to. Well, I'll tell you the, the number one podcast and it doesn't have anything to do with medicine or uh-huh. yeah, well, maybe sometimes it's science, but it's called the Jordan Harbinger show. Have you heard, oh. have you heard of this one? No. Okay. This guy is, he's been doing podcasting for 12 or 13 years. I think he is a master interviewer. Um, and he talks to scientists and athletes and people that write books and all kinds of people. And a the lot, of, a lot of the stuff that I've done with my show, as far as the format and you know, the way I do the intro and the show notes and all that stuff, I pretty much ripped off from him. So that's, that's a good one. That that's okay, good to favorite. know. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, you know, with running, so I'll listen to a couple of those. There's uh Ultra Runner Podcast is a good one. Trail Runner Nation, that's another good one. Um Okay. I like I'll listen to the hockey news podcast. I like hockey. Um <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Hockey there's just news. there's just I go all over the place. And then now yeah. you know, there are you know, there's 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 my my podcast and yours, and there's um, the group of pathologists came out with one called Path Pod. Oh yeah, have you? Yeah, uh, there's that one. Yeah, we could final triad. We could all do a crossover episode someday. Oh, that'd be sure. fun. Yeah. That'd be fun. Uh-huh. Um, there's Detroit's Daily Docket. Um, okay, which is forensic pathologists from uh, from Detroit. Uh, oh, that's a good one. Um, I could probably go on. That's probably very interesting. Yeah, okay. and I actually just spoke to. Um, one of the pathologists from that show, Dr. Sung. Cool. Yeah. Um, nice. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the, uh, another forensic pathology one, Dead Men Do Tell Tales. Nice. That's a good one too. Yeah. Yeah. Do um, you listen to the running podcast while you run? Yes. Cool. Yeah. I, that's yeah. really the only time I, I do. Okay. okay. Um, How about you? I have to say that I'm uh, – I don't know how many, I don't really think I listen to many science podcasts. My favorite podcasts are political podcasts and I tend to be of the um, progressive persuasion. So I listen to things like Pod Save America. Um, it's, it's always been my favorite. I've actually seen them live. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. When I lived in Denver, they, they, I mean, they came to Colorado as a swing state. So everybody was always coming there. Mm. Um, and then I, I like to listen to, lately I've been listening to Kara Swisher. Do you know who she is? I think no. she's lovely. And she's, um, she has a podcast called Pivot, um, which is about finance and um, technology, which is not something I ever thought that I would listen to. But her co-host, Scott, Scott Galloway, is a professor who, I, from, from what I can tell, he's kind of like an economics and education and it's he they come up with things like they talk about investing and you know the future of stock and all this stuff and it's just really i think it i will listen to a podcast about just about anything if the people are interesting and they are they have good production value and it's well done you know what i mean Mm -hmm, mm um i like you know the old favorites um fresh air and um wait wait don't tell me those kinds of things when you need a break and uh Honestly, um, I, I kind of switch back and forth. Sometimes I listen to pop culture stuff like Keep It or there's this one from this podcast called this, sorry, website called Delisted, which is very irreverent and sort of profane. It just depends on what kind of mood I'm in. And then yeah. there's a couple ones about music as well, like um, Song Exploder. Those kinds of things are very interesting. It really just depends what kind of mood I'm in. Sometimes I go on news fasts where I just don't look at the news at all. And so I sort of pivot to the more pop culture stuff. So sure. it just depends. Sure. Yeah. There's a podcast for everything these days, which is a great way to bring our podcast to a close. Um, yes, it is. And uh, 
I know this is going on both platforms, but for mine, I would like to thank um, Matthew C. Plack for making my theme music. And I would like to thank my guest, Dennis Strank, today for joining me. And um, and I, w- I would like to thank you, Dr. Benet. Um, yeah. And I, I encourage everyone to share uh, this episode with someone you know who might find it interesting. And like I say, at the end of every one of my episodes, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. Yes, yes. And a podcast can even be just listened to on your computer. So it's very easy, very accessible. So we'll share it all around. Thank you so much, Dennis, for joining me and have a good day, everyone. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, ditto.